Well, in any good story, there's always the main characters and the minor characters. Of course, the main characters are those that receive the most attention. The minor characters are those who help fill in the gaps of the story. They serve only a very minor role in the overarching story and the unfolding narrative. They could perhaps even be left out of the story without diminishing the point. Then there are the secondary characters. These characters are more essential. They, are, they help move the story forward with the main characters. If you remove these secondary characters, the story would not make any sense. For example, no Batman without the Joker. No Luke without Darth Vader. No Harry Potter without Ron. No Maverick without Goose. These are secondary characters, supporting roles, but they're important because they help the reader, the viewer, understand the main character better. While these secondary characters are important, they help us understand, and often we forget about them. As we continue to study through the, the narrative of Luke's gospel, we will come across a variety of characters. Those who have secondary roles, those who have minor roles. But I hope that as we study, we see that each and every character that we come across in this unfolding narrative, this true life story of the person and work of Jesus Christ, I hope you see from the pages of Scripture, each and every one of these characters crying out, and pointing us toward the main character. There's only one main character in this story, and it is Jesus. In every supporting character, whether it's Simeon and Anna, or Mary and Joseph, or John, each and every one of them has a role to play in helping you be assured that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and that He came into the world to save sinners. Each and every one of these supporting characters are driving you and I to this particular end. You'll be reminded of why Luke wrote the Gospel to begin with. He has a purpose, and he sets out his purpose in the very first verses of this Gospel. He tells us that he's writing to a friend in the ministry, in the, in the faith, his friend Theophilus. And he is writing to Theophilus to tell him about the story, the old, old story that he knows so well. Everything that Theophilus will read in the pages of Luke and Acts, all of which Theophilus would have heard. But, but here we see Luke compiling us an orderly account in order to give us, the reader, like Theophilus, assurance of the things believed. To shore up our trust that, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a myth, it is not a fairy tale, it, it really happened, it is historical. But more importantly, we ought to come to the theological conclusion that Jesus is who He said He is. And Luke has organized this gospel in such a way as to, to show us that when one is encountered with the one true and living God, when one comes into contact with Jesus, 
and comes to saving knowledge with Jesus, Jesus turns your world upside down. Such that what is first becomes last, and what is last becomes first. What the world thinks Jesus should be is completely against what Jesus actually is. Where the Jews hoped for a, 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 a king who would, who would deliver them from Roman captivity, Jesus comes and is buried, or rather, Jesus comes and is born in a manger lowly. There's no announcement, no decree, no, you better get scared, Caesar, because our king has arrived. None of that. And we see in this gospel that Jesus Christ has not come to deliver the rich and the powerful, but we heard it on the lips of His mother Mary in her song, Magnificent, that, that what? He came to save the poor and the lowly. That the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is for those, as you heard the choir just sing, who are afflicted and crushed, who are poor and impoverished. It is not a gospel for the rich and powerful, for the educated and influential. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is for the least of these, for men like John, like Mary and Joseph, like Simeon and Anna. With this in mind, in the context in mind, I, I wanted to set one other context before we dive into this passage. You cannot rightly understand your New Testament Bible apart from the Old Testament. Now, if you were to close your Bible right now, I bet you that the left side of your Bible, you know, the shiny little gold edges, well, on the left side, it would be less worn than the pages on the right side. That's because you probably spend most of your time reading your New Testament and very little time reading your Old Testament. But you see, the Old Testament is Christian Scripture just as much as the New Testament. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the New Testament to understand what, what's going on if you don't understand your Old Testament. In a number of ways, one important one for us this morning is the Passover. If you've ever studied the story of God's people, God's people were enslaved. They were captives in Israel for 400 years. And, and God's people had cried out for salvation for 400 years. And God was slow to save. But after some time, God raised up Moses, a deliverer, a rescuer who rescued his people from captivity and delivered them to the, to the cusp of the promised land. And that night, when, when they were finally and fully delivered from captivity, God told his people, commanded his people, to celebrate the Passover, a perpetual reminder in the life of the nation of Israel that God saves his people. So every year as they sacrifice the Passover lamb, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia, they were reminded of the truth that God redeems his people. That though God might go silent because of their sin, as he often would do in the Old Testament, though God would judge his people by exiling them to, 
the Babylonian and Assyrian captivity, though God would judge his people, he never abandoned his people. And that Passover was a perpetual reminder of that. And it's that sacrifice that's the backdrop of our story this morning. That God will save His people. That God will deliver His people from His enemies and from theirs. And so, the point of our passage this morning is very simple. And and, and not very profound. Theologically, you know, in a sense of it's big and wordy. It's simply this. Jesus is the Savior of the world. You didn't have to go to seminary to figure that one out, right? That's the point. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And Luke wants you to walk away from this story this morning with this in your mind, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came into the world to be the Savior you and I needed Him to be. And so I hope this morning that you would look upon Jesus alone as the Savior of the world. Now our narrative this morning naturally falls into two parts. So if you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 2, we're going to consider this morning verses 21 through 52. And it naturally falls in two parts. There is two scenes, if you will. The first scene takes place when Jesus is still a baby. And he is taken to the temple for some ceremonial dedications. And we'll think about that in a moment. When the second scene unfolds, Jesus is no longer an infant, but it's now grown. He's, he's 12 years of age. But I hope you would see Luke employs a narrative or literary device when he writes. And here's why. Remember, they didn't have a Bible written down for them like you and I have. And so these would have been spoken orally. And so in order to remember the story, Luke tells it with the temple being the backdrop of the story and the Passover being the overlay of it. And so we're at the temple, whether it's Jesus in the infancy or Jesus at 12 years old, he's there in the temple. And by the way, a reminder that the temple was God's visible display of His presence among His people like the tabernacle was in the wilderness. So the temple became for the nation of Israel, even when they were in the nation or in exile, the temple was seen as where the people of God met with Him. And with this as the kind of backdrop of the story and the unfolding narrative of our passage this morning, both of the temple mount or the temple proper and the Passover sacrifices, Luke delivers to to us this story, beginning in verse 21. I invite you to look there, 857 in the Pew Bibles. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The word Jesus, friend, means God saves, all right? God saves. Verse 22, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Holy Spirit, or in the Spirit, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to him, for this was according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what he had said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Well, we see very early on in these unfolding story that Luke wants the reader to walk away. He wants Theophilus to have the confidence in that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. Even in the very declaration of His name at the very beginning in verse 21, God saves. It was evident that this child was unique. He was unlike any other child that was being presented that day. Now, as you read the story, it might seem as if it's sort of a, a quiet place, a somber place, and, and you, know, you know, it's just Joseph and Mary there, and, and the little baby Jesus, and oh, Simeon's there, he's you know, got the little cute baby. It's a really cute scene, isn't it? My friend, you understand that this is a scene filled with blood, okay? Uh, this is a scene in which things, things are being ripped apart, things are being chopped up, things are being sacrificed, more than that, it's not a, a quiet solitude scene. There would have been hundreds of babies have been born there within that period of time and therefore needing to be blessed and dedicated to the Lord. And so, therefore, there was this, this sort of chaotic scene of people filing into the temple and, and babies there uh, being presented to the Lord, firstborn babies being presented uh, and sacrificed. And now we learn a number of things in the story, don't we? And we were told that they went up as was written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. 
Now this here has its ties and connections to the Passover. In the Passover, the firstborn was was the one that would die, right? If, if the blood was not painted on the doorpost, the firstborn, when, when the angel of the Lord passed over, literally passed over the people, and, and we know that Pharaoh's firstborn son is killed because, of course, they have no atonement, no sacrifice. And throughout I- Egypt and Israel, the firstborn died. And so as a reminder that God provides for His people salvation, and this is a point in which we can't really dig deep into right now, but, but, but I'll just mention it in passing. You can study it a little bit more yourself. But, but the promise, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, the promise of salvation, we are told, would come from one of Eve's children. Thus, the unfolding narrative of the Old Testament pays particular attention to the birth of The firstborn sons. Why? Well, because it would be through those sons that God's promise would ultimately come. And why here the attention is being put upon the fact that Jesus is the firstborn son is that he is the promised seed who would finally and fully deliver God's people from their sins. God had promised thousands of years earlier through Eve that God would send a Savior to save his people. We also notice in this passage that Joseph and Mary are, are poor. The provision would have been for a lamb to have been sacrificed. The firstborn son, a sacrificial lamb, but, but there was provision in the law for those who are of little means to have something other, a, a, a scapegoat, if you will, um, that they could provide. And we are told here in the passage a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. We see Luke pointing just subtly. He didn't have to tell us that. That didn't aid the story moving forward, but, but it did aid the story if you understand that, that Jesus was the Savior, not of the victorious, not of the powerful, but of the righteous, the meek, and the holy here. Now, throughout this story, we are told, first and foremost, that, that Mary and Joseph were devout followers of God. They were doing all that was according to the custom of the law. And we're told here of two faithful saints, Simeon and Anna, who were righteous and devout before God. Well, the point remains as we see in the prophecy here told by Simeon, this old man who had served faithfully for for decades there at the Temple Mount, had, had given his life to ministry, service to God, who is righteous and devout, and notice here, verse 25, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. Now the word there is the word you heard me read earlier from Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, for the Lord has comforted His people. The, The word consolation means to comfort. A part of Isaiah's prophecies of the Messiah, the Messianic reign, was that of comfort. And so similarly, in Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she receives from the Lord's hand double all her sins. 
Now, you need to understand that the nation of Israel has been in rebellion against God, had, had basically said, you know, your law is useless, sacrifices are unhelpful, we, we want to be like the world around us, and they lived in total depravity before God, and God said, I'm done with you, see you later, get out of my land. But God, in his kindness and long-suffering with his people, even in the midst of their rebellion, promised a deliverer who would come and free them, who would provide for them double for all their sins. And so what Simeon is longing for here at the temple, waiting for, is the coming of the Messiah who would then deliver God's people from their their sins, who would atone, be, be somehow a means of atonement for their sins. And when he sees Jesus, we're told there in verse 26 that he has seen the Lord's Christ. He has seen the Lord's Messiah. Simeon is giving you and I eyewitness testimony that he saw the Christ. He didn't hear about the Christ. He didn't, it wasn't through oral tradition that he, he learned about the Christ. No, he saw Him with his own eyes. He touched Him. He had Him in His hands. And he declared blessings and glory to God that His salvation had come. Notice what he says, though, in his prophecy. Verses 29-32, through we learn that this salvation was not only for Israel, was for the nations. You see, if you go back in your Old Testament and you go to the, the call of Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, he called one particular person out of all the nations of Israel, or out of all the nations rather, he calls one person and he says, I'm going to set my love on you, on you, Abram, and from you is going to come a light of my glory. See, the plan was always that the nation of Israel would be a light to the, to the nations, a light of God's glory, that the nations would learn about the glorious God. So when you see the queen of, uh, of Sheba coming there to Solomon's temple and learning about all the blessings God had done, this was, this was the unfolding of God's purpose and promise. But when they rebelled, well, nothing says God is glorious than a ratty temple that's broken down and had been destroyed. Because of their sin. That's why they couldn't stay in the land. Because the land was, was meant to display His glory and wonder and, and they had brought shame upon it. But notice here in this verse what Jesus is doing. For my eyes, verse 30, has seen your salvation. Yeshua. He's seen Him. I saw Him. That you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. That doesn't mean every person. This means all people without distinction. In other words, for every tribe, tongue, and nation the gospel will be for. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now I want you to get in your head what is happening in this moment. The Jews are, are waiting. They're, they're like, you know, they're biting their nails we can't wait for our king to get here in town and when he is born and raised up, his, his throne will be victorious and he's going to get rid of these nasty Gentiles. But what does he do? The king comes and says, oh, I've come not only 
to be victorious over you, my people, but over every tribe, tongue, and nation. I've come to save people that you despise, a light for the nation. Friend, do you recognize that most in this room, very few of us, if it was a matter of Jewish descendants, we would, none of us, this, this is, there's no hope for us. Jesus came to save even Gentiles. And, and we're included in the promises of God such that I could say that the Old Testament Scripture is Christian Scripture, friend. How glorious the salvation that has come to us. And we see it even in Anna and in in her prophecy. Giving thanks, we see there in verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for what? The redemption of Jerusalem. God's Savior had come. And those that knew God well, who had been in intimate relationship with Him, knew who Jesus was. But we also learn in that narrative that not every Jew will accept Jesus. That not every religious person will believe upon Jesus. We learn in this story in Simeon's prophecy to Mary that the cross looms large, doesn't it? That the shadow of the cross is even here cast upon the infant Jesus. Look again what what he said to her in verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Some will rise and some will be cast down. And, And for a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Mary was there at the cross while Jesus bled and died. She witnessed her own son. She witnessed also, as the story unfolds even this morning, that Jesus is going to be about the Father's business. That there's going to be even a tension between a a mother and a son's relationship because Jesus is ultimately about His heavenly Father's work. But we also learn in this story that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. When you come in contact with Jesus, here's, here's what happens. Your true heart is revealed. You're exposed. You can't come to the glory of the light and the knowledge of God in the person of Jesus Christ and not be exposed. It's impossible. You're as naked as Adam and Eve are in the garden trying to find little things to cover their shame. Friend, when you are confronted with the one true and living God, all you have to do is stand in shame. Fully exposed. And the story that Luke will tell us is that of those who come in contact with Jesus, they stand exposed. All of this is to point us that Jesus is our only hope. 
There is not a Jewish Savior, a Christian Savior, an Islamic Savior, a Hindu Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. And He came to save you and and me. It's a reminder that you need a Savior. He's come to save you from His Father. Because His Father wants to destroy your soul. His Father wants to send your soul to hell eternally because you rebelled against Him. But His Father also sent His Son to die the death you and I deserve. To atone for our sins is the promise given through the prophet Isaiah. That Jesus is a suffering servant who died the death we deserve and was raised again to declare that our sins can be forgiven if you would just simply trust in Him. He's the Savior we need. But in the unfolding narrative of Luke's Gospel, we learn that Jesus is a unique person. He is more than merely a human. He is truly God and truly man. And so in our last few moments, I want us to consider these verses 41 through 52. Jesus is the son about his father's work. As I told you, as the scene shifts from the the infant Jesus, they're growing up in Nazareth, coming to know the Lord better, coming to understand his work. He was a human being. So we reject the old heresy of of Apollo that says that Jesus was, was kind of half man and half God. No, no, he was truly God and truly man, fully God and fully man, as we affirmed earlier. Verse 41, now he, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Here we are again at the temple during the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke here records this story, most likely given to him at the, at the lips of Mary herself. A little hint to that there in that last verse, or rather in verse 51. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Mary reporting this to Luke. Like most parents, we're told of a frantic scene. They've gone up to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover as a family. A three-day journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem and a three-day journey back. And upon their return back, of course, as they're traveling in this caravan, they find that Jesus is missing. 
Now, a number of things present itself, doesn't it? As a parent, this is a most natural response. If you've ever lost your child at the store, no doubt, you're frantic. And particularly husbands in the room are frantic. Oh, great, I'm in big trouble. I've lost one of my kids. My wife is going to kill me. I've done this before, not lost my kids, uh, but, but, you know, uh, I've gotten out of the car before, you know, walk about five or six rows, and they're like, oh, I've got a kid in the car, I have to get out. Oh, no. And, and, and in those moments, I'm not afraid of the police, I'm not, I'm not afraid of, of my reputation of leaving my kid in the car, I'm afraid of my wife. <laughs> Even telling her the story, I was quite... You know, it was all worked out okay. I felt safe. Maybe not. So every parent knows what Mary and Joseph are experiencing this moment. They, they, it's a frightening scene. They've lost their son. But more than that, if they've been paying attention along the road, they know that Jesus is quite unique. He is the Son of God. He is he's blessed. He's a special person. Not only have I lost our children, I've lost God's Son. Now I'm really in trouble. And they're frantic about it. And so they travel back. They've been a day in. And so now it's another day. They've, they're a day back home. They've turned around. They're, they did a U-turn there on the road. They're, they're, now they're a whole day away. They travel back. And they're searching throughout the Jerusalem. Where is our son? They cannot find him. Frantic. And we're told by Luke that they find him where? In the temple. Now it's funny in verse 47 we're told that all who heard him were amazed, verse 48 rather, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. You know, maybe they were astonished, we're like, let's see at the at church for, that's weird. I'd expect him out doing something else. But, but no, there he was, we are told, listening to the teachers. I want you to notice a couple of things here very quickly, verse 46. After three days, uh, let the reader understand, perhaps a little Luke is uh, nudging us to, to some conclusions there, but but I'll leave that to you to think about this afternoon. After three days, they found him in the temple. Again, the temple was the place where God met with his people. It's where the law was read. It's where, it's where you had access to the scriptures, where prayers were offered up for the nations. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. This is a quite, quite unique scene, isn't it? A 12-year-old boy sitting among the teachers. Notice it does not say sitting under the teachers, but sitting with the teachers. As if Jesus, a 12-year-old boy, had something to offer these scholars, lawyers, experts on the Scriptures. Sitting among them, teaching, listening. Now, in Luke's Gospel, Asking them questions? Jesus doesn't ask questions because he wants to know the answer. Jesus asks questions in Luke's gospel to get you to think about your own heart and the truth being revealed in Scripture. And nonetheless, what we see here is something wonderful and something profound and something to marvel at that Jesus is just like you and me. He's a human. This is the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, that He is fully human. 
He had to learn like you learn. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to eat. He had to learn how to talk, how to think, how to read, how to reason, how to ask questions. He was a human. This is essential to the doctrine of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is our human representative. Where Adam failed, Jesus, the second Adam, succeeds. But we also know that Jesus is not merely a human. Notice as Jesus' parents come in, and, the, and with astonishment of the crowds, astonished at this little boy who could, who could know so much. I mean, he's from Nazareth after all. What, what good can come from Nazareth? Uh, surely a scholar couldn't come from there. Surely someone who knows the Scriptures as much as this boy does. I mean, he, he's from the backwaters. He's from the backwoods. He, he's an uneducated man. I mean, have you, you meet his father? He's a carpenter. He's not educated. Verse 48, his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. <laughs> and you've got to love Luke, Luke and the way he presents Jesus. I, I just hope you find joy in the Bible. This is wonderful. Jesus responds to them. He doesn't comfort his mom. He's like, Mom, it's cool, man. I've been in a temple. Like, it's all good. Jesus responds and says, Why were you looking for me? What do you mean? Why were you looking for me? She's your mom. She's worried about you. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He said, this is where I'm called to be. In my, I must be there. There's a necessity here. I have to be about my father's business. Two things. Number one, no Jew would have ever called God their father. This is radical. No one, this is, you say, well, how do we know that? Well, Anytime Jesus did this among the religious leaders, they got big stones in order to bash his head in. So, yeah, they thought it was a big deal. But here we see Jesus having an understanding of his heritage. He knows who he is. Though he's growing in his human body, he is fully God. And this is the mystery of the incarnation, isn't it? That he's truly God and truly man. Two natures in one. This is what we affirmed earlier in our statement of faith. Begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. And He's attributed in teaching. And, and the natural response of, of Mary and Joseph are like, uh, whoa, that was a weird statement you just made. They didn't understand it. You see, the revelation of Jesus is an unfolding revelation. It's an unfolding story here even before us. And we have greater light than they did. But we understand this particular point, that Jesus is about the Father's work. And as this story unfolds in Luke's Gospel, the story remains the same. And one of the hinge verses of this entire Gospel is set out right here in chapter 9. 
And Jesus does ministry in Galilee for, for the first very you know, few years. And then all of a sudden things change. And he says, and Luke records that he set his eyes toward Jerusalem. He was about the Father's work from beginning to end. He is the eternal Son. But what was the Father's work? Well, it's what we thought about earlier. That Jesus is the Savior that we all need. Well, Luke concludes here by telling us that he continued to grow in stature, in favor with God and with man. He had to grow into his humanity, but that did not make him any less God. And this morning, I wonder, do you believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God? Truly God and truly man, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. Do you believe that truth? Do you you affirm that truth? Is it what your soul depends upon? Then you must live in surrender to Him. If Jesus is the Christ, and He is, then submission is our only response. It is not mere acknowledgement. It's not just, yeah, that's who he is. But it's, but it's saying, that's who he is, and I am going to live in submission to what he says. So that, so that what he says goes, not what I say goes. That I'm going to live my life his way, not my own way. Friend, let me just summarize for you very briefly what Jesus' way is for your life. I've got your life figured out. Maybe you're here this morning, you're searching, what's God's will for my life? Here it is. Kill your way of living. Die to yourself. Your life isn't about you. It's about him in his glory. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what you have to do if you want to follow Jesus. To the rich young ruler, Jesus says, you've got to sell everything that you love and treasure in this life, and you have to go and follow me. Jesus says you have to stop living life your own way. And perhaps you're here this morning, you, you think you can have it both ways, that you can, you can live life your way and, and still have Jesus. Friend, Jesus doesn't work that way. He doesn't operate that way. He never will operate. God says you either go my way or you die. You know, we often struggle with submission. This idea is foreign to us. It's ingrained in our very culture. Insubordination isn't just a teenager problem. I've talked to enough adults in my life to know that insubordination is a human problem, not a kid problem or a teenage problem. The idea of submission is foreign to so many of us. And what we've seen displayed throughout this section of Scripture is obedience to the will of God. Whether it was Simeon and Anna worshiping devoutly, or Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the temple, or even Jesus himself. You know, one of the profound things that we learned in that passage there was that Jesus went home with them and was submissive to his parents. And I know, parents, you might put that on your refrigerator at home and say, look, Jesus obeyed his parents, you need to obey yours too. But the point of that is, is that Jesus obeyed his parents because you can't obey yours. 
You can't obey yours. Jesus came to be the sinless Savior we all need. And I invite you to trust in him, and you too will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we give you the glory this morning that you have sent your only son, your only begotten son, to die the death that we deserve. The story of salvation, of victory over our enemies is, is through the cross, through sacrifice, through death and through resurrection, and through ascension and glory now and power and majesty. I pray this morning that we would surrender our life to you, that you are our Savior, that you are the Son of God, and that we would give our life to you for your glory, for our good in Christ's name we pray, amen.